1: One of the most tactile and relevant places that we can look for clues to the past is the graves of our ancestors. It's a bit unsavory, but buried with people who once lived thousands of years ago, lie the secrets of their lives and cultures. For our purposes, there's a lot of ancient wine history that comes to us through tomb excavation. And those brave enough to search for these secrets have been able to shine a light on how wine influenced trade, politics, and even the quotidian existence of the everyday person. It's a pretty interesting thing. Some of the earliest pharaohs of Egypt were buried in ships, and sometimes fleets of ships. We're going back pretty far here, to about 5,000 years ago. In Abydos, there are several ships in a funeral grouping, sailing off to the sun god. On the ships, you can find everything the leader may have wanted for in the afterlife. And I mean everything. If you had been his sommelier, you would have been sacrificed too, to accompany the guy and make sure that no sediment ever touched his lips in heaven. What? Yep, all the attendants were sacrificed as well. Imagine signing a contract like that today. What kind of wine was in these early pharaohs' graves? Jar upon jar of resonated wine that had been shipped in from abroad. Some of the jars were flavored with herbs and spices and fruits. Later leaders in Egypt would establish their own supply, and they would found their own domestic wine trade. What's neat about these jars is that not only can we determine what was in them by analyzing their residues, but we can determine where they came from by analyzing the clay used in the pots. Much as oak from different places is sought out today for different flavors, I'm sure drinkers in the ancient world could distinguish between different clay and resin influences. Think of how terra rosa soil impacts the flavor of wine grown in it, and then think of how an amphora made from terra rosa would influence the flavor of the beverage inside. So the first dynasty pharaohs were drinking resin wine, imported from abroad. But later dynasties had their own supply of Egyptian wine. Pharaoh Pepe, for instance, had five different kinds of clearly labeled wine in his tomb. He also had about five queens, too. Five kinds of wine, five queens. Coincidence? I'm not so sure. Maybe they each liked a different kind of wine. Fast forward a thousand years, and wine is still popular. In fact, King Tut's tomb had several amphoras of red and white wine. And here he wouldn't even be old enough to drink. But it wasn't just Egyptian pharaohs who were using wine in graves. A little farther north in modern-day France, vessels from closer to the Mediterranean have found their way into tombs there. The Vicks Crater is a famous bronze vessel found in a tomb of a young lady. It dates to around 2,500 years ago, and it's over five feet tall. It's one of the largest craters in the known world. And sometimes, wine wasn't used just for drinking. All too often, we forget wine's antiseptic power in previous centuries. Being unable to trust drinking water, many people got much of their daily water intake through alcoholic beverages. Fermentation is one of the earliest water treatments. And so it's natural that we'd find wine, or other local alcoholic beverages, almost everywhere in ancient ruins. But sometimes, wine was used as more than a conduit of safe drinking water. Come with me for a moment to the tomb of King Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. Now sure, he had plenty of wine-drinking cups buried along with him, but wine had multiple purposes. When Alexander buried his father, he first set him ablaze in a giant funeral pyre. His charred bones were collected, and before they were placed in a gold box for all of eternity, they were washed in wine. What kind of wine was it? Red, white, orange? We don't know yet. Some secrets remain to be unearthed.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, -S 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 dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Ferro of Domaine de Pego and also Chateau Pego on the show today. Am I saying that correctly?
2: Yes, you have to pronounce Pegao.
0: Pegao. If see. you want
2: to speak Good in Provençal.
0: Good thing I asked you.
2: And, and if you want to speak in French, you say Pegau.
0: Oh, is that true?
2: Yeah, Pego in French, Pegao in Provençal. I
0: wonder why. That's probably why it's always been confusing to me. So, which way do you prefer?
2: Ah, the way you feel more comfortable. Okay. <laughs> so, Pegao is in fact spelled with um a tréma in uh, in English. I don't know if you say the uh, umlaut.
0: An umlaut, sure. An
2: umlaut. So uh, with the A umlaut, funny house. yes, with the umlaut is uh, in fact the the Provençal spell, and the umlaut up to the u that we pronounce u. Oh, okay. And uh, because French people and Parisians, especially Parisians, they uh, dissociated the letter as uh, German people when we put the umlaut in German, they said uh, Pega U and not Pego. So I decided uh, to uh, to take off the umlaut. Then the people, they pronounce the way in Provencal as a "u" without the umlaut, they pronounce U, or in French, they said Pego. But in fact, the umlaut was a right spell, but for the people, the uh, French people, they dissociate the letter.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense, because I've heard it pronounced both ways. It's, uh, it's
2: not easy, yes, because it's, uh, in fact, it's like a German pronunciation with laut."
0: So originally the family winery was Ferrofi, that your grandmother was the winemaker of.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, she uh, came from Isabella in Italy, and uh, she, was, uh, she was waitress at the Chateau de Vaudieu. Uh, and she met uh, my grandfather, who was uh, pure French. And uh, he, um, he was like farmer for growing vegetables, fruit, uh, not so much involved uh, in the vineyard. And uh, both they worked for uh, others' family in Chateauneuf-du-Pape and uh, step by step. Uh, when the people sometimes they passed away, they gave the right to my grandparents to take care about the vineyard or they gave to them or they sold to them because they had a priority because they worked on the on the farm. And then my grandmother, she passed away with 22 hectares, which is uh, average 45 acres. But because she had four children in France, we have to share equally. And uh, my father had uh, five hectares in heritage.
0: And your father is Paul.
2: My father is Paul. It was, uh, uh, from, uh, in fact, he's a teenager, uh, from teenager. He was, um, he was really involved, uh, in the vineyard because he was the youngest of the family and, uh, and the others, they, um, they work at different places. So he was uh, he liked to be winemaker and vine grower. So he really started and stay in that in that work. And my father worked for five hectares, but he worked also in a factory, because it was not enough to live long time ago. And I'm de- I decided to create a company with my father just after my study, technology and viticulture, and and uh, marketing school. I worked for a company in Paris. Then after a year I decided to be back to uh, the south of France in Châteauneuf-du-Pape and ask to my father to create our own company. So my father had to leave his parents and uh, the family business to really create with me uh, something different. So my parents they had a house but in fact we built the winery and the cellar next to my parents' house. Before my father, before I arrived, my father made the wine at his parents' house.
0: Because those are a little far away.
2: It was not very far. It was from the other side of the village. But I didn't like the the way to work, in fact, with uh, my uncle and my aunt. So everybody worked at the same place. It's like a mini chef in one kitchen. That sometimes doesn't work and i was uh, the youngest to uh, arrive in the family so mostly of the bad work was from they were they were for me so i just decided to move away with my dad and also to create a name to not having the same name as the others, like ferro is why we call it pegal because i study marketing i always knew it, it, the the name has to be uh, short easy to pronounce. And for me, it was important. A name with a link with the wine or with the pop, Provençal. And the Pegao is uh, the wine uh, pitcher, Pichet. And uh, this Pichet was used during the 14th century, during the pop period. And uh, I think it was very um, easy for the people to really remember that short name.
0: Because the popes were in Avignon for a period of time,
2: the popes they arrived in Avignon in the 14th century, and after they built the summer house in Château du Pape. And if you go on top of the hill where the chateau in Château du Pape is built, you can see easily Avignon. So they control, in fact, the navigation on the Rhone, and for eventually uh, attacked. So the, the pop, they were very uh, power in this area. And uh, we had three, or oh, I don't remember how many pops, in Chateauneuf-du-Pape. But the summer house was, uh, in fact, built first to be in front of Avignon, but in, uh, also to, uh, to plant vines, to produce wine, and to save the mess.
0: And one of the things that's interesting about your state is you have parcels all through different parts of chateauneuf de pape Montpertuis Bosque, Solitude, mm-hmm. Croix. What are those different parcels like? What should I know about them?
2: This is probably the part um, uh, I'm very interested uh, to, uh, to talk about, is the vineyard. Chateauneuf-du-Pape is on 3,400 hectares, which is uh, 7,000 acres. Uh, we are 280 winemakers. We could say all in competition, but we are, no one is in competition with the other one because there's a lot of characteristics in Chateauneuf-du-Pape to make always a different Chateauneuf-du-Pape. So we have, uh, I could say, four main different terroirs. Uh, one of the part of the East of Chateauneuf-du-Pape is in fact uh, crau which is the most famous for the sandy soil. And is, uh, is a part of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, but, but depends of another village called Cortezon. Then after, there's a very um, stony soil, as typical you can see on the photo everywhere, which is Bedarida, the next village. And it's stone, and more we work, more we have stone. Then uh, clay soil, mostly in the middle of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, as you say, les bosquets or um, north of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, orange, part of orange. And there's also very calque uh, area, which is west of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. And if we grow uh, in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, we have uh, the rights to plant 13 different types of grapes. So the 13 varietal planted in different soil gives a different style of wine. But if I want to talk only about Grenache, the Grenache, which is the main varietal uh, in Châteauneuf, uh, the Grenache in the sandy soil, as we have at Pego, it's very uh, mineral, a great lens with um, the, uh, most of the style of Pinot, nice acidity, and a good nerve. Um, the Grenache grows into the stone. It's more powerful, uh, rich as uh, high alcohol contain, because the stone, of course, they keep the heat from the from the day, and they restitute by night that heat. So the berries are riper, and berries riper with, so they have a high sugar contain, and of course the wine will be uh, higher in alcohol. And then uh, Grenache, in the stone and clay. It's very typical as a spicy, uh, spicy wine, uh, licorice with a dense middle palate. At Domaine de Pégot, we don't have Grenache in the calque. We don't have uh, this part of Chateauneuf. But calque also is very mineral and um, nice spicy, but different as uh, spicy from the clay. So all the different terroirs. Mixed, in fact, with a different type of grapes. Uh, This is very interesting. And then, of course, no one winemaker can make the same wine because they don't pick the grapes in the same time. Sometimes they have a vineyard co-planted or they have just a field for one type of grapes and they blend before the process or after the process. Most of them, they stamp now, which is, in fact, they take off the stamp which we don't do at Domaine de Pégo. We work the traditional way, full cluster. And after the process, it depends also. At Domaine de Pégo, we do uh, between uh, 10 to 12 days because with a full cluster, we don't want any green uh, taste from the stem. Then it's a short process. Uh, We just pump over every day or twice a day, very gentle. And uh, then we press after ten, twelve days. For the Ouzo winemaker, they could make some longer, longer process for one month. And after the aging, also there's no regulation for the aging. We can uh, at Domaine Pego. We use only large, older cask, five thousand liters, six thousand liters, and the barrels. They are between. Uh, 15 to 90 years old. So they don't give any oaky taste. Uh, we age the wine in the old oak to give in fact uh, spiciness and to have a wine uh, really better combined.
0: And then you ferment in concrete.
2: We ferment in concrete with the 13 types of grapes because mostly of our vineyard they are co-planted. But we have 80% grenache. 6% Syrah, 4% Mourvedre, and 10% of the different varietal. We cannot really uh, say a percentage. Sometimes it's one or two uh, plant in two hectares. But each time we replace, every year we replace few plants that are dead during the winter or something happened. So we replace by uh, the mixed also varietal. We I really want to keep that tradition, because uh, the name of my top cuvée capo became in fact from the idea to continue to respect the tradition with the thirteen type of grapes.
0: And you use the press wine.
2: Yes, there's a free range juice and the press. Yes, because the selection. Uh, in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, the regulation is one of the strict regulation in France. But the re- regulation is uh, more based uh, in the vineyard, uh, like um, regulation for pruning, five pieces of wood with two buds, maximum 10 branches, maximum 3,500 liters per 2.5 acres. There's also regulation about the alcohol, which is a minimum 13.5. So there's a regulation mostly in the vineyard we have to respect to produce concentrate wine and a typical Um, Chateauneuf-du-Pape.
0: But in terms of using the pressed wine, how does that that play in? Uh,
2: In fact, yes. uh, Also, the regulation is, in fact, we pick the grapes by hand. We are not allowed to for, for a machine, so we pick by hand, and each picker they have a bucket and they bring the bucket to the tractor, where in fact we uh, we spread the bucket on the top, uh, and we can see and make a selection of the bunch. So we uh, declassified between five percent to twenty percent of the bunch, they are not in good enough to go into the Chateauneuf-du-Pape. But this selection is very um, subjective. depends the winemaker if the, they really want a concentrated wine, so they will be stricter about the, the selection. The others, they will judge probably a few bunches that are good enough to go into the Chateauneuf-du-Pape. But we have to do minimum 5% of the selections. So this is, uh, in fact, It's a pre-selection, so we don't need after to select the juice. So it's why the range juice and the juice from the pressed um, blend.
0: When you make the difference between the Cuvée Reserve and the Cuvée Laurence, it's actually a matter of elevage in terms of length of time and Mm. wood. It's not different parcels.
2: No, it's not different parcels. The Cuvée Laurence, in fact, became from the beginning, because during the um, late 80s and early 90s, My father sold uh, mostly of the wine in Bach. And when we started uh, to have Domaine de Pégo in 1987, we didn't sell enough, the wine bottled. So we had to sell mostly in Bach to get the money and to pay back the building we have done, the winery and everything. So what we did, we couldn't, in fact, bottling 5,000 bars in once So all the time we bottled uh, 2000 and uh, again 2000. So depending in fact the vintage or how fast the first bottling was sold and then we redone again a new bottling. So that means for the Cuvée reserve, we had three different bottling. And then for the Cuvée Laurence, it was even latest uh, bottling. But the thing is, I had probably one of the oldest clients. It was a wine importer in U.S. in the Michigan. He imported some of Ferro and Fils uh, before we created Domaine de Peco. And that man, I remember, always asked for the latest sparkling because he likes he likes really the spiciness of Châteauneuf du Pape when it aged long time in the barrel. And it was impossible each time said, okay, this is the first or second bottling for you. This is uh, the latest bottling for you. So in fact, I decided very quickly to do everything latest bottling in Cuvee Laurence, even if we had two or three bottling Cuvee Laurence and two or three Cuvee Reserve bottling. But we needed really to have uh, at one point a difference between a I could say three years aging and before four years, five years aging in the barrels. But everything became uh, more organized during um, the, I could say, 96, 98, especially 98, with the new top QV of Dacapo. We had really to say, okay, mostly of our production is on a Cuvée réservée and uh, today we produce 75,000 barrels of a Cuvée réservée. Cuvée réservée is Domaine de Pégot, is exactly what I want to place, to, uh, to settle, to, to export everywhere in the world. And the Cuvée Laurence now is really one barrel, the same blend, the same wine as the réservée and we age an extra two years, so total four years for the cuvée Laurence. But this is, uh, in fact, organized that organized uh, step by step during, in fact, our life and our experience.
0: What was the thought process into making the Capo cuvée, which was, as you said, the first release in '98?
2: Uh, the cuvée de Capo, oh, is a big story. The cuvée de Capo, the first cuvée de Capo, was in 1998. But I remember in 1997, 1995, I was uh, in um, in Amsterdam. I travel and try to sell the wine uh, better and better. And I met different winemaker, as uh, winemaker as uh, Rich or Turley or many many of Joseph Fans, and also some Moses winemaker, even Champagne or. Winemaker for me, it was uh, sometimes Burgundy, which I love. I love Burgundy wine. And it was very difficult for me to access to, uh, to some very expensive wine because the Chateau de Departre was not expensive. And I couldn't believe, you know, being a winemaker and I couldn't drink what I like or what I wanted uh, to try and experiment and in the meantime, there were many people in Chateauneuf-du-Pape. They exported to uh, to U.S. I also exported to U.S. And in U.S.A., uh, when you, uh, you open a wine list in a restaurant, you, all the time you read Zinfandel. At that time, it was very famous. Zinfandel, Cabernet, or Syrah. But in fact, it was not the Appellation. And uh, many of people from Chateauneuf-du-Pape, they wanted to, to do a Chateauneuf-du-Pape with one type of grapes. And because uh, I always supported the traditional way to make the Chateauneuf-du-Pape, I said, no, I don't want to make a wine for a country or for people. It's I'm completely against. What I want is to educate people and to explain them why we have Appellation, And they they have to understand. You know, for wines like uh, Burgundy, it's only Pinot. It's simple. Uh, Bordeaux, okay, there's Merlot and Cabernet. But for Bordeaux, it was easier to export because it was Cabernet. But for us, to explain Grenache and all the 12 others, the blend before in USA was in fact the wine uh, not with a high value. Because the palate was not educated and they didn't understand uh, the way we work for the appellation. And when I started to do the da capo in Chateau du Pape, we say it's a symphony of the 13 types of grapes. And I wanted to be back on that symphony, is why I call it da capo, as in music, da And we always said the Grenache is a piano, the Syrah violin, and each type of bridge has its own instrument. You can read that somewhere. It's explained uh, in Château du pape And I call it, I, did, I wanted to call it opera, but I think it was too simple. But that capo was a more, I think, a strong, a strong word. And it's why we, we started with that wine. And... Uh, the 1998 was on the market with the name Soda Capo for 4,000 bottles. And the price was 100 euros. That was average uh, 500 franc.
0: Because I've seen it for, you know, over $1,000 in the States, at restaurants at least.
2: Mm. I don't remember the franc, actually. <laughs> I completely forgot the franc. So it was, uh, yes, 500 francs. But everybody really was shocked by... Uh, in fact that price but not abroad because I knew uh, it was uh, accessible for the others and I wanted to uh, in fact earn money to buy some more wine from abroad I wanted to buy Burgundy, I wanted to buy Californian wine, I wanted to buy wine from everywhere first to be more educated and uh, second because uh I judge uh, the wine, my wine had the uh, same value as, as the others. But it was a, a real push in Château du pape I think. Um, even if now the price, they are higher, but maybe the others, they still not probably 100% agree with me. But I think I, I push the price in Château du pape and I'm quite proud about it.
0: Sometimes I've seen really quite big bottles of Kapo. Did you bottle a few yes. large format?
2: Yes, uh, we do. Uh, we like fifteen liters. We only do five large format. Five. Uh, we have a twelve, nine, six, three magnum, and bottle.
0: And mm. what was the significance of ninety-eight? I mean. Obviously, uh, praise, vintage, a lot of heat that year. But why did you pick that year to begin with the couple?
2: Because for me, it's like a, a coup de coeur for many things in life. I just, uh, I, I like one barrel. And I always went on the top of the barrels and tasted wine and tasted wine. And I said, no, I don't want to blend that wine with a Cuvé réserve. If I really didn't insist, my father would... Uh, Blended the wine with uh, cuve, these barrels with the reserve, but I wanted to keep it apart, and I did it.
0: So I've had the Capo two thousand three a few times, and I've had the Reserve two thousand three, and, and they're pretty different, I think, in terms of taste.
2: Yeah, how it's would you, different vintage, and but the same way to do it.
0: But how would you describe the the differences and? where the capo is sourced and what it tastes like?
2: Um, I, I, I don't decide about the wine. Eh? Uh, I'm picking grapes. Uh, it's more than 26 years, I'm picking grapes every day. This is, I think this is like a part of my holiday. I love going in the vineyard and picking grapes from 7 in the morning with the pickers, and I can eat the grapes, and if the weather has been good from spring to the harvest, and I can feel the the crispy skin mm-hmm. or the the quality of the berries come come up and up during the harvest, I said, "Oh, this is a a good vintage to do a capo, But that doesn't mean I'm not looking for a style. I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for a good wine and a
0: balance, specifically balanced. The vines are pretty old though, like 1902.
2: Lacroix is more than 100 years old, it's a wine with uh, sandy soil, so very elegant, and it's 70% of the Takapo. The Dacapo people, they could, uh, people they never tasted the Takapo. they could say, could say, oh, the Dakapo is a very strong and power wine. It's not, because 70% mixed type of grapes from sandy soil, it's very elegant. Of course, on top of that, it's better to do to put 20% of uh, stony soil, which is in fact give the, the style of Chateauneuf-du-Pape with, uh, with the power and the, the fatness and roundness. So, this is important. And uh, 10% of the red clay, which is the middle palette, will be uh, something a little bit sticky on the tank with the people, they really, they will really enjoy it. And for the Dakapo, I think the consumer, each consumer, you will find something you will like in the Dakapo. It's why I'm looking for the balance, but not for. A balance of one wine. I like uh, the balance for different style. Is is why probably the I pick up the vintage, not thinking about the the style of the wine, but more about the the what the vintage will give.
0: What's it like to grow Grenache versus growing Syrah? Do you handle them differently in the vineyard?
2: For sure, because there's a regulation about that is uh, there's only one type of grapes in Neuf du we can put on the trailers, which is Syrah. The Grenache is pruned uh, as goblet, short pruning. I call it bonsai pruning. <laughs> it's the short pruning. So we have 12 different types of grapes, including the white short pruning and only Syrah on the trailers. Now, many years ago, some vine growers, they Ask to uh, to put the white varieties on the trailers because the Roussanne had a very long branches as the Syrah, uh, so they slightly uh, change the regulation for the white. You know, in Châteauneuf-du-Pape, we produce some red wine as we go, we produce red wine with uh, red bunches, but also white bunches. We have a uh, part of the A little vineyard is white and pruned in goblet pruning, short pruning. And we blend the bunches, the white bunches with the red bunches. And we can make the process. We have to make the process, the red and the white together. We can mix together before the process, never after, but before the process. But by the, this uh, slightly change of the regulation, they said if the Weingauer put the white varieties on the trailers, so he can put on the trailers Roussanne, Clairette, Grenache White, and Beauboulek, with only one condition, he has to produce only white wine. But he cannot blend anymore the white with the red. At Domaine de Pigo we have one and a half hectare in white. So we have um, 70 acres, 0.7, pruned in goblet. Then we can blend with our red. And we have 0.7 on the trailers. And we only produce some white wine from Château du
0: so what's claret like to grow? Because I don't think outside of chateauneuf de pape it's it's not a well-known grape variety, at least for Americans.
2: Claret has uh, the higher acidity, latest ripe, good uh, citrus. I could say it's very important to have claret, to to have a chateauneuf de pape white, quite lively with a nice acidity. Without Clarette um, I'm afraid sometimes the, the white is too heavy, too alcoholic. With the claret, that brings, in fact, some, uh, some nerf and lively white wine. It's not easy to make some white wine in a very hot area as Chateauneuf-du-Pape.
0: And is there a significant difference between Grenache Blanc and Grenache Rouge outside of pigmentation? I mean, is it essentially the same thing or is it very different?
2: Taste is different. Taste is different. Grenache white, the berries, they have the same shape, red or white. Uh, but the white, you can eat some uh, white Grenache berries. For the red, is more difficult. You can feel the Grenache red is really for the vat. But I can eat some, uh, some Grenache white as some grapes for the table, as a fruit. But it's not. It's better to taste Boboulenc, which I like when I eat like that. But mostly of the that varietal, they are for the vat to produce wine. And uh, Château pape also has pool. We don't have pool, We have picpoul blended in the red uh, field, but we don't have a uh, vineyard pool. But now we uh, some of the vine growers they realized pool. It was a very uh, simple uh, type of grapes produced in really in the south of France, m- much more in the
0: Languedoc.
2: And uh, but Picpoul has a lot of freshness and uh, and the minerality. So Picpoul is very interesting.
0: Kind of a green apple taste a lot, kind of like malic yeah. acidity, I think.
2: Yes, so. yes. And the white and the red. For me, I really want to keep some white in the red. Because people before they planted they co-planted white, red, and all the different types of grapes in Châteauneuf on the same in the same field. And there's two points. First, in the wine, I think the white bring the, the acidity and also the freshness, which is very important in the red, when the red is quite power. Uh, so we don't, in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, we can add some acid tartric, but we don't need to add too much acid tartric when we have that blend and the wine, we can feel the wine, I can say, more digest. The alcohol is a little bit lower when we also blend with uh, some white varieties, which is quite important about that. And also... I talk with people, they um, they study about the different time of the maturity. And uh, we actually, we don't have the result actually about some experiment, which I'm interesting to know in the future because I'm a small domain. I cannot do some so much experiment, but I'm always talking and I'm always having some idea with, uh, with the yours. It's in fact, why the maturity is more consistent on one field with a mixed type of grapes, like a Grenache planted next to a Mourvedre, which in fact, Grenache and Mourvedre, are, Mourvedre is the latest uh, ripe. Then another, most of the time when we pick different types of grapes on the same row, the maturity has not a very um, large difference. And when we plant one field of Grenache, one field of Mourvedre, then the maturity is very different. There's a different time for picking. So what we we just, I think we need to study, is there any uh, probably point about when the bees comes and the flower comes in the same time? Is it a really micro you know, activity or microclimate or micro... There's something happen because it's more, in fact, homogenous when when it's co-planted. So this is a point maybe to clear up in the future by uh, people and the research.
0: It seems like most of your vineyard parcels are co-planted. Is that that true? Mm -hmm. And with the red wines, I often find that they age quite well and sort of demand some age as well. What would I expect with the white wine, which I have less experience with? Is that a wine for drinking somewhat early, or is it something I should lay down?
2: So the white, it depends about the white and the varieties. For Pégo, we have a 60% Claret. So it's white wine, very uh, nice freshness. Uh, 20% Grenache, white, to have a minimum of 13.5% uh, alcohol.
0: Because the Grenache has a little bit more yes. sugar extract.
2: Yes. And we have uh, 10% Bourboulin and 10% Roussan. The Bourboulin, the berries are a little bit b- bigger. And the Bourboulin has a nice flavor as the Roussan. But the Roussan, the name Roux means red. But the Roussan is a white varieties with a red point. In fact, this type of grapes will give us some color, more gold color. So, the way we make the wine at Domaine de Pégot, I mean, we press directly the four types of grapes together, we, uh, we cool down the juice, really low temperature, then the, the heavy deposit will just uh, drop down and then we will rack and then step by step we'll raise the temperature until 16 we'll add some yeast and it will be a very cool temperature process for two or three weeks then the wine will will become with uh, all the freshness in the and the style of each variety. Uh, when the wine is produced in uh, so September, is usually bottled in January, February, the year after, and it's good to drink the wine the year following the bottling, or to keep it over and three years. The years between, uh, you know, the first years to the fourth years, this is not a good time to drink the Château white.
0: So in a way, it's sort of forbidden by law to make a really crisp, lean Châteauneuf du Pape of white, of low alcohol, because there's a minimum alcohol there level. There's a minimum, yeah. So even if you wanted to make something that tasted like Sensaire, you really you wouldn't be allowed to call it Châteauneuf du Pape. You'd have to declassify.
2: Nobody really liked to declassify Châteauneuf du Pape because uh, uh, to declassify with low alcohol, we we cannot have uh, you know the name Châteauneuf du Pape on the label. We can even not use uh, the typical bottles printed with a key. Uh, sure, with the keys. And, uh, and a hand pop. So the tiaras, so I, it's difficult to, uh, and also we have uh, taxes on the vineyard. Uh,
0: that stay the same no matter what yeah, you bottle. From. Uh,
2: because it's included in the appellation. So I, I don't see uh, probably the point to really declassify
0: it. But you do make some Vindetab and Vindepay reds, Plampago, which is a wine I like a lot.
2: Plampago or pink Pago now?
0: Yeah, I haven't had the pink one. What's it like to make a rose?
2: Yeah, this is from Chateau Pago. Yes, pink, pink Pago. Oh, so it's the, from a
0: different parcel. It's, yes. it's from the Cotteron parcel. Yes. Okay.
2: But in fact, in, we have Chateau du We always had Chateau Neuf du Pape and Plampago. Plampago is a table wine, and now we call it Vin de France. At Pégo, the vin de France has uh, never been vintaged, so that means it's a three vintages blend, a part of the vintage aged in a small barrique, but old barrique, and the other part in a vat. We blend and we do the style of the Plan Pégo. We had only two wines. The Plan Pégo was considered as a little wine of Pégo. But in fact, it's outside of any appellation, outside of Cote du Rhone, outside of Cote du Rhone village. We can plant any type of grapes we want and we can produce any quantity we want because we always wanted to bottle the Plampego. So, of course, we we always maintain a certain level of quality. Now with uh, Cote du Rhone, the new vineyard, Because we bought a new property of sixty hectares, one hundred and twenty acres, included eighty-four acres of Côte du Rhône, Côte du Rhône village, and uh, again, Vend de France. In that Vend de France, we produce some red wine, and we can blend with the Plan Pegot we had before, and we produce also rosé. When we produce a Vend-de-France, we are not allowed to call it Côte-du-Rhône or we are not allowed to um, to call it Château. So the name has to be stronger, I mean, more marketing in the, to sell than really the name of the appellation. There's no appellation. So Plampego, everybody call it Plampego. Nobody call it Cote d'Iron because it's not and nobody call it Vin de France so now we have two wines uh, more and more famous by the name Pink Pego and Plan Pego but we produce from the bench from outside of any appellation
0: and that 60 hectare purchase happened in 2011 12 oh in 12 okay
2: the 12 uh, red uh, 2012 is our first vintage
0: and so, what's it been like working in different zones? Because you also do some negos work in places like Seguret and things. What, how are the the surrounding zones a little different than Châteauneuf? It's
2: uh, it, it's difficult. Um, from domaine de Pégot, de Pego, always was domaine de Pégot, and I always really keep it apart. In two thousand one, many of my uh, wine importer they asked me to find for them a new producer or new wine because they couldn't travel or they were quite interested with my taste or what I blended. So I decided to uh, create my company and to say, okay, I'm not a negociant because I don't buy any wine. I have no storage, but I'm going to see different winemakers. I blend and after they bottled under my label.
0: Selection of Lawrence Farrell.
2: Oh, yes, so it's not a wine I buy and after I blend with someone else. Is mostly of the time is uh, in fact only one wine producer I selected, and inside is winery or cellar we can do some blend to uh, to export.
0: And then there's also the Farrow Brunel
2: bonheur that was just before. in fact Fer was in 1999 we created the company. That was the same. In fact Ferbon, we are six in Ferbon. So we didn't look really to make some money or uh, we were in fact six people to uh, share the work and to have our own section for working. Ferro Bonel was in fact the start of a wine selection, and especially made by Philippe Cambi, who is a famous analogist. So, Philippe Cambi is also a part of the company, André Brunel and I, and the other partner. But, André Brunel and I, we had many importers, and we wanted to supply them with uh, Gigondas or with other wines. The thing is, uh, sometimes uh, Ferro Brunel is really good as a really power wine, powerful, with the style of Brunel and I. is a real blend of our style, what we like, and what Philippe, also uh, the oenologist, like. The selection Laurence Ferro is different, it's more elegant and spicy. But we have uh, two, two market, two different markets for that. And, uh, and it's still working very well, both. So there's no competition between uh, the two different, uh, different names.
0: What degree of the domain Pagot or pagau wines are exported? How much is exported? 95%. That seems rather high for a French producer. Yes,
2: yes. 95% to uh, 40 countries, 80 wine importers. In the U.S., I have three wine importers in the U.S.,
0: because you've had a long relationship with Dan Kravitz at Handpick Selections.
2: Yes, but before, as I talk about uh, the Michigan, uh, before Pego was created, J.C. Mattes, he was um, a professor of the University of Michigan, and his hobby was to import some wine for France. And in fact, he turned uh, the, his hobby in a company, and the company... Uh, didn't increase a lot because uh, it was not his own job. and It was not uh, specifically for uh, a large business. He just uh, wanted to, uh, to import the, the wine from the wine producer. He, he really loved the best because Jesse Mattes, mostly of uh, the summer, he spent the summer in the south of France. So I could say 30 years ago. Much before Pégo, 30 years ago, that man really mostly lived uh, in the south of France. So he knew all the tiny roads, all the little winemakers with a completely different philosophy as now. Uh, so his business became famous 15 years ago, I could say, by, you know, this business explosion about the, you know, expense suddenly about the, the wine. Uh, but Dan Kravitz, I met Dan in uh, 1987, just uh, when I started to, to create Pegau, And Dan was really, Dan, Dan Kravitz was really for, for business. And the bis- business really increased. And uh, now it's, it's a big company. Then also I had um, uh, Martin's Wine, which in fact the company has uh, recently sold. And uh, Greg Castle, now with some partners, took the the company back to Martin. So with Martin's, but I always, I never gave any, um, I could say exclusivity. But I, I always wanted the three importers, they respect the states where they work. And uh, so Martina had, and Greg now, same. Uh, Martin Swine is uh, in California and Nevada for Pegao, Ferro Brunner for mostly of the states. And uh, DNS, do not spit, has Texas for Ferro Brunner. Then for Domaine de Jena Jenna has been transformed in JNJ. In Michigan and Texas, and handpicked selection as uh, all the other states. Because and handpicked as uh, Chateau Pego plus Selection Laurence
0: Ferrand. Oh, okay, okay.
2: So then as mostly other things.
0: Because Dan Kravitz always seemed to have a strong relationship with Robert Parker, or at least Parker praised him in print several times.
2: I don't know about uh, uh, Dan Kravitz and uh, his relation with uh, with uh, Robert Parker. I have no idea about that. Um, I never seen really uh, Dan Kravitz talking about Robert Parker. No, they just uh, maybe just send a sample as uh, many importers they uh, they need sometimes some help because it's true. Uh, it's quite helpful if the winemaker is well-rated. It's easier to sell the wine. I think and not only the wine rated, it's easier to sell all the wine <laughs> because that help. If, for example, Domaine de Pégo has the 96 points on a wine, it's uh, easy to sell Domaine de Pégo, but most of the time they add uh, some other wines because it's like they tracked
0: everything. Because, I mean, in your situation, you've had some very high scores from not just Parker, but from the Wine Spectator. But at least, uh, what, like 600 point ratings in about 10 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So what's that been like for you? Because that's, you know, somewhat unusual.
2: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: When did that start? 90? Yes, in
2: 1990. Uh, That really helped in 1990 to sell. In 1990, we started to sell the stock my father had before Pego. We sold in 1992 all the vintage 1990. And that really helped to pay back the investment we have done. Uh, Since we expanded uh, the vineyard, so today in total we have... uh, 71 hectare of uh, vineyard, 71. So that really helped to, uh, of course, to become famous. But we, um, we didn't, I, well, when I say I don't know, that means uh, I didn't really think about uh, having a wine rated. I always uh, produce the wine I like, the wine I will be able to drink. And um, without really um, try to copy someone else, just to have uh, uh, my own signature. Um, my father gave me the ex- experience and uh, I got after uh, from school what I knew. And at the beginning, it has never been very easy. So of course, all the... When each time the wine has been rated was uh, for us like a, a nice breath to uh, to get further uh, to to go in the front. That that was very important. It was for me. I never been proud because um, I make wine and this is my job. So uh, if you like your job, you try to do it well. You are not looking always to be uh, awarded if you are satisfied, I mean, about the sales and the pleasure you have, then after everything, I mean, when the wine, they were well-rated, of course, we sold the wine easier. And the money was for, not for living more comfortable, but to buy more vineyard, because we are farmer. And French winemakers, they are not like, American, we are an old country, so we really live about the history, about, you know, what we will give to our children, so for us, we always think about generation generation. It's not only uh, one product, it's what we, we do and we make for many generations, and we, we want, in fact, the last generation be proud of the new generation. And we pass some, um, I think, history story about that. And it's very different than uh, than uh, the American, in fact, style. I mean, sometimes the people, they are winemaker, they plant vines, then they pull out vines, they do another, they plant something else. They uh, In France, no. And also because Château du Papa it's an area quite famous, we cannot do... Uh, Anything we want, we have to prove. It's a terroir. It's a, it's a wine uh, always been famous in the world, and we have to continue in that way.
0: How old your dad today?
2: Seventy five.
0: Is he still working in the vines?
2: Uh, I try to push him to work <laughs> first because it's important for him. Um, no, he doesn't work in the vineyard. I mean, not f- full time. No. But he um, is getting up early. He speaks with, her, with, with the free employees I have. And um, even the Pego uh, company, we have a very good uh, relation with the people they work for us. It's like a large family. And, and I prefer to work that way as a, a big company. It's why probably the people, they ask me when I'm, I pick the grapes, most of the time, the people next to me, they said, oh, you know what, the vineyard, are you working here for a long time? And I said, yes, but I couldn't guess I'm the boss uh, because I'm picking grapes all the time. After, it depends about your education, you couldn't change. If someone, you know, there's uh, some business uh, businessmen, they work all their life, they will never stop working. My father is the same and I think I will be the same.
0: But early on in your relationship, he focused more on the vines and you were doing more cellar work. Is that true or no?
2: Oh, yes. He always ran uh, the vines. But my father was a, and still a good vine grower. We ne- never changed the way of working vines as well. For him, he grew up in, as being vine grower. But we are not organic certified. But we always work as a natural respect. We always have uh, this um, pheromone in a vineyard. We uh, we always work the soil. We never put in for vehicles. the insects, like for yes. the sexual confusion that yes, stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, so in fact, we always work the same way. But my father was a good grower, a good winemaker as well, without. A wine analysis or whatever, then, after, as I said, he has the experience and uh, and I knew more about the analysis about the wine, and the way I knew more the way how to conduct really the to drive uh, I can't say drive how the way how to drive uh, the domain in the business and um, my point of view about also. Because I always travel and I love traveling, and because I, I love the contact with the people and different population and what they like, what they what they eat, what they drink, what is their taste, which in fact is different in any countries. So this is very interesting about the human uh, in connection, and I always report what I met at the domain and try to. Uh, to explain to my dad, and together we we try to just understand and to go in the way we needed to go.
0: It seems like there have been vintages that were quite warm and vintages that were cooler. What's it like in terms of the growing side and then the production side to make wines from those kinds of different vintages in of the Pop?
2: It's many, many years now. I decide exactly the day we start for picking grapes. Because in the village, there's a part of people, like also my dad, they said, oh, we have to start on the 15th of September. But that means nothing, depending the vintage, depending the weather. So as many years, of, I don't know when exactly I started, but I said, no, 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 uh, we need to go in a vineyard. First, uh, we need to see... Uh, the probably percentage of alcohol. We we don't talk in bricks. We talk in uh, probably percentage alcohol with a refractometer, uh, so we can just uh, has uh, we we can have a, an idea about what the alcohol would be. And after, for me, I really taste the berries. Each berries, I pick the berries on the grapes. If it comes easily, that means it's ripe. If we had a lot of rain during the spring or the summer, the berries are bigger, the skin are uh, thinner, and it is less crispy, so it will be less color concentrate. If the berries are smaller, of course, it's less juice, but darker color, more tannin. Uh, If the peeps, they, they come easily out from the pubs, but all that every vintage difference but for me I taste a lot my father is better to taste after the process I cannot taste the must I mean my father takes the the berries from the must when it has been fermented which for me I have no idea about that but I have the idea on the fruit then I decided to pick up earlier or later depending the vintage and the result is much more homogeneous when we picked at the right time this is very important when the fruit is cut from the plant there's nothing to do it's finished then after it's always uh, as a gamble we can leave the the bunch longer we could have a bad weather now with a forecast Uh, previous weekend we know a week in advance is not 100% but it's it is good then we can plan we can plan this is uh, this is important about the vintage but the most difficult vintage in my life which I really needed my father but uh, it was good to be two it was uh, 2003 it was a vintage, like, unbelievable. So uh, it was uh, very funny because even my father was worried about finishing all the sugar contained in the wine because, uh, in fact, all the, the berries, they were so ripe and overripe. Uh, the alcohol was over than 16 percentage alcohol. And we needed to, uh, to finish the three 4 grams of sugar left, which was not easy. And that took quite a long time. The process, they were not finished in December. Few vats, they were finished before December. Then after in spring, the the year after, it was uh, very, very difficult. And for my father, he said, no, 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 we have to uh, really fill up the vat, closed, no air, nothing, no oxygen, and forget it. Leave it quiet and quiet. And the natural will do what it is. But every day we were right, I said, uh, "Are you sure is the a, is a right right thing to do?" He said, "Yes, yes." And the day after he asked me, "Are you sure I'm doing well? Or do you think we can do something else?" So both we were not sure. So this is, but it's good to be two. And two, I can say two with a, a strong temper. Because uh, he believe about what I said or I believe about what he said. Sometimes we can argue, of course, and we argue quite a lot. <laughs> but it's because uh, with a strong temper, it's not only one who decides. We, uh, we always uh, switch or decide and we always go in the front. So this is, uh, this is a big difference between uh, probably the people, they are on their own to take a decision. You, you really have to be strong. For us, we don't have any analogist. So we work,
0: just uh, him and I. And no Pegao in 2002, the year before.
2: I, I did a Pegao in 2002, but I didn't put Cuvee Reservé on an neck label. And recently, I organized a vertical testing. But 2002 missed. I had no one bottle left. And no 1991.
0: No and that was a somewhat difficult year for you to sell, right? Didn't that stick around the cellar for a bit?
2: 1987, I sold it in England to um, Nethergate. who was a very uh, old wine importer. 2002, um, Dan Kravitz took quite a lot. And 1991, I don't remember. Maybe we sold a part in Bourke. That could happen as well. When 2002, it was um, was not a big deal to sell 2002 because we, we produced 50% less and the price was 50% less. In fact, that was, uh, yes. But uh, to have a good vintage, we need to have a bad vintage. Or after it's really boring to have only good vintage <laughs> and the people, they don't know what to buy. So it's better the up and down. And on the marketing for me, on the markets uh, like uh, 2008, I decreased the price. 2009, I increased. 2010, even more. 2011, I decreased. And etc. I know what it will be also for the next vintage. And uh, it's very interesting because there's um, a distribution for expensive vintage Top vintage for probably collectioner, private customers and uh, really, uh, I could say, uh, really knowledge consumers. And for the vintage, they have uh, good quality and the price is much lower. It's very accessible for the um, restaurant and for the market. I'm very happy because many restaurants, they uh, get into Their wine list Pegal, thanks to the vintage, easy approachable by the quality and the price. So, in fact, I gained more client in a way.
0: I was sort of taken aback recently by the consistency across the vintages and the way that I felt like 2009 was very similar to 98. Maybe a half degree more alcohol, but stylistically... It seems almost the same, just younger. How did you feel about it, and how was the difference between nine and ten?
2: Uh, nine for me is very um, rustic, traditional. In US, is always uh, the when they they are on the chatting on the internet about uh, the Brett, the two thousand nine, as uh, sometimes. Is a little bit like uh, stable, and uh, they are very um, sen- sensitive to the stable smell. Like a
0: horse stable. Yeah. Not stable, like it's no calm. horse
2: stable. Yeah. yeah.
0: But that was a that was a characteristic of the '98 too. It yeah, was like a leathery brush.
2: Yes, this is Chateau du pape style. But after this, people, they like or they don't like. So. 2009 for me was not too far than 1999 as well, similar uh, smell, which people, some people, they love it, like they are crazy about that, and the others, they hate, so it's very uh, divided in two styles of the consumer, 2010, it's pure, concentrate, clean, 2010, of course, suits mostly of the consumer. And that is more licorice, uh, nice concentrate fruit. Um, it's, it's a it's great vintage. I like both, depending on the food. Depending on the food.
0: What's next for Pragal? What's going to happen in the future?
2: <laughs> I have no idea yet. 2012, it's fantastic. It's as good as 2010. But no dacapo. I think I just uh, need a break for the dakapo, so two thousand and ten was uh, fantastic for the dakapo. I need a break for two thousand and twelve not everyone did a great vintage in two thousand twelve, so I think Pego twelve as a réservé and the potential to do a decapo. I think the réservé will be fantastic with uh same price as two thousand and ten so i'm I'm very happy with that. Two thousand and thirteen will be a little more difficult as it was uh, a cooler vintage, but cooler vintage like two thousand and eight, but with more fruit, a little more concentration for two thousand and thirteen but it will be very interesting because the uh, very high natural acidity will give a very um Fresh 2013, but that the consumer they will understand later. 13 will be a great vintage for aging, not something uh, rich and power and uh, not jammy or, but something straight, a little bit sharp, but very uh, very elegant. It will be good. It will be good, but of course the price will be lower than 2012. Because there's no choice when on the market is not a top vintage. I don't want to spend, I travel enough to sell the wine, and especially the Côte du Rhone now to start on the market. I don't want to really, uh, you know, keep the same price as 2012 and really take uh, three, four years to sell 2013. I want the vintage, they turn over every two years quite fast and there's always a new vintage coming in the market the people that are curious or they want to be uh, educated they will pick up a 2013 they will pick up a 2012 this is uh, an evidence uh, of the nature to have different vintages and this is uh, all the interest about the wine for me it's it's clear
0: Laurence Faro of Pagau, she's bringing forth the evidence of nature. Thank you very much for being here today.
2: Thank you to you, and uh, I'm very happy to be in U.S.
0: Laurence Farreau of Domaine de Pagau and Chateau Pagau. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, all drinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe,